0: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a production of iHeartRadio. With
1: over 7 billion people in the world,
0: we all have one thing in common— Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary.
1: April, I think you and I are both pretty excited for today's episode because we are finally talking about the project that really solidified not only our working partnership, but our friendship. Yep. Today, we are talking about fashion and the art of pochoir, a topic which we just happened to write and publish about in 2015. Mm. You might have heard us mention it.
0: Yes. (laughs) Shameless (laughs) self-promotion. Yay. (laughs) Well, we worked really hard on it, so we want to share what we did and what we discovered with you all. I think we've mentioned before in the show that we met while you were an intern at Special Collections at FIT as a grad student. And I was there working on my first book, um, which is called Fashion Plates, 150 Years of Style. And then towards kind of the tail end of that project, you ended up coming on board um, as a research assistant. And and I remember when we first made introductions that you were very, very busy working on organizing the department's miscellaneous fashion plates collection, which now that I actually officially work there, I know for a fact was no small order because there's a lot of them. Right. And it,
1: it was not a small order, but it was <laughs> so much fun. I was working diligently on dating and identifying basically orphaned fashion plates that didn't have a home. And so one of the publications that kept turning up in my research was the luxury fashion magazine known as Gazette de Benton. Um I was absolutely floored with how stunning these fashion plates were. And the fact that on first, you know, I didn't know much about it then, but they appeared to be hand painted. The colors were so incredibly vivid um, after all these years. And it turned out that they retained their vividness because they were printed using this hand stenciling technique known as pochoir. So pochoir is French for stencil. And my interest was Beyond peaked, I ended up making an entire independent study out of locating all of the pochoir in the collection and compiling it into a bibliography.
0: Yeah, and and as it would turn out, we have a pretty stellar collection of pochoir um, publications at FIT and Special Collections. Over 50 publications, and many of these are among the most rare and the most valuable in the world. So Cass and I were naturally drawn to the 20-plus pochoir Fashion publications because we we do have things in the collection that are not related to fashion. They just use that technique. Um, So, when we started looking at all the fashion publications we had in the collection, we had to whittle it down. We couldn't cover all of them, obviously. So, we picked 10 of them to highlight in our book, which is called Fashion and the Art of Pochoir. And this was published by Tams and Hudson in 2015. And the book really specifically centers on the time period of the 19-teens and the 1920s, because this was when Poshuara was kind of reimagined and sort of innovatively reintegrated into the world of fashion publishing specifically. And some of these images, I mean, I'm talking like drop-dead eye candy. They they are simply some of the most visually stunning images in the history of fashion ever, in all time. Yeah. Yes, they are
1: so incredibly beautiful, and you are going to see lots of them on our Instagram, so stay tuned. Um, it's such an incredibly fascinating period, but before we really dive into the use of pochoir in fashion illustration of this period, we first thought it was important to, you know, learn a little bit about the printmaking process itself. So what exactly is pochoir? So as an image-making technique, stenciling has existed for thousands of years. At its most basic, it's a form of reproduction that dates to at least 40,000 BCE. Oh yeah, just, you know, (laughs)
0: 40,000 BCE. So it was used in cave
1: paintings. Yeah, no, you know, just last year. Uh, During the Middle Ages in Europe, it was employed by people such as King Charlemagne, um, which was a really interesting thing to learn. So he could not read or write. So he used stenciling as a means of signing his name, which I thought was so fascinating. And centuries later, stencils were used as a basic decorating technique for things like playing cards and furniture and wallpaper.
0: Uh interesting side note, Cass, Charlemagne is apparently, according to my grandfather, who is way into genealogy, my great, 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 great something grandfather. So what? Yeah. Did I never tell you wow. that before? I know. Yeah. I he, know. <laughs> he's traced our family all the way back to Charlemagne. So oh that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so, but back to we we're, we're getting off topic here. Um, <laughs> it was not until the end of the 19th century, however, that French printmakers began to develop stenciling as a viable print medium to be used in Book publishing, And their interest in the technique was no doubt inspired by the stencil Japanese wares that were then very fashionable in Europe. You know, all of these artists and craftspeople in Japan had cultivated a similar technique for hundreds of years, you know, really advancing it to such a point of sophistication that it was, it became to be much admired and emulated by their European counterparts. Right. And of the
1: numerous European printmakers that took up pochoir at the turn of the century— none can really compare to the importance of the French pochoir scholar, innovator, and incredibly skilled practitioner, Jean Sade. So his contributions to the artistic renaissance of the technique in the teens and 20s are really unparalleled. So in Sade's hands, a once simple primitive method of reproducing images became this incredibly intricate, nuanced undertaking. And it was really a process that was capable of replicating an artist's original work, original piece of art, down to the most minute of details.
0: Artist George Barbier wrote of Sade, whom he calls the master of colored prints. He says Sade, quote, revived the ancient method and raised it to a degree of perfection never achieved before. The most tenuous values, the most daring contrasts, nothing escapes him. He analyzed watercolor to make it as gleaming as the breast of birds of the islands. Gouache is spread on in capricious waves. Nothing is difficult for his resolve. Nothing is impossible for his virtuosity. Yeah, I mean, those are big praise. That's big praise from George Barbier, yeah. right? Um, but, but indeed, Sade produced Barbier's first prints in Pochoir, really kind of endearing Barbier to the medium that he himself would prolifically use throughout the rest of his career. But we're going to learn a little bit more about Barbier in a bit because he's a really seminal figure here.
1: Oh, absolutely, and one of my favorites. Um, but so in Sade's 1925 treatise, the Traite dans Luminaire d'Art au Pochoir, um, Sade provided an in-depth look into the intricacies of the Pochoir technique. And you can actually find a digitized copy of this book online, which is really cool. It's really an artwork in and of itself, um, and it's on the New York Public Library's websites. The images in it, of course, are printed in Pochoir, so I highly recommend um, looking that up. But so the most important part of the Pochoir process was in the beginning phase when the components of the original work of art were scrutinized and broken down. So each color variation in an artwork required a separate stencil, as did any subtleties in texture or tone. And it was really Sade's ability to perfectly emulate any nuances in an artist's work that made him a master of his craft.
0: Yeah, and, and Cass, once once those were broken down into the component parts, the stencils were then cut from thin sheets of copper or zinc by the decoupeur using a very, very thin knife, kind of something like an X-Acto knife. And then these stencils were then given to the colorist who, I mean— their attention to the registration, the perfect alignment of these stencils is incredible. Um, and they had to get that just right because then they applied the watercolors or gouache to the pages um, that had typically already been printed with any of the basic black outlines that may have been part of the original work. And, and these individual colorists, uh, many of them, who were women, by the way, they had they had an arsenal of tools and techniques um, at their disposal. And the best of them actually ground their own pigments. And this is something that accounts for some of that, like, very intense vibrancy that we see in pochoir prints um, when they're well over 100 years old today. I mean, some of them are so bright, they almost, like, you feel like your eyeballs are about to be seared out. I
1: know, they're so beautiful. Um, And in 1931, Barbier contributed an article to the Art et Metier Graphique magazine, which um, he dedicated to the pochois technique. And he says, um, he brings to mind this incredibly beautiful image of a pochois studio. He says, On the table, the pots of paint sparkle like bouquets of flowers, agile hands doing the pochoir with the brush wet with color sheet after sheet. What a pleasant spectacle. What happy work which demands of these vivacious hands this smiling dexterity, this taste and skill which belongs to these little Parisians.
0: So by the first decade of the 20th century, the pushbar technique had been adopted in France across fine and applied arts. And it was used in portfolios for artists, architects, interior designers. It can also be found in numerous books on fine art, poetry, theater, music, and of course, what we are here to talk about today, fashion. So... Our book celebrates basically the mastery and the extraordinary beauty of pochoir as it was used in fashion publications from 1908 to 1925. A brief, albeit fertile, kind of like golden age of fashion illustration.
1: Yeah, so this was a period when the painterly qualities of the handcrafted and quite costly pochoir technique was embraced by these forward-thinking fashion designers and publishers alike who were all Well, they were really disenchanted with the machine printed, mass circulated fashion publications that dominated the period. So think Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. There was also this magazine called Femina and Les Modes in France. And these enterprising visionaries really instead, they were seeking to cultivate a more elite and wealthy readership with these luxury limited edition fashion publications um, that were illustrated by finely trained artists.
0: Yes. And collectively, the 10 publications that we feature in our book document a fashion revolution, both in terms of the clothing styles that are being depicted and also the practice of fashion illustration itself. So these these images are illuminated in pochoir, and, and the publications kind of present this fresh alliance of fashion and art. And it challenged the long-held notion that fashion illustration was not a viable platform for true artistic expression. You know, this continued use of pushwar throughout the teens and into the 1920s really helped to dramatically redefine the visual landscape of the centuries-old fashion plate, which, which had been an otherwise very, you know, traditional advertising tool for dressmakers, tailors, and uh, purveyors of fabrics, trimmings, lace, you know, embellishments, the whatnot. And you might have heard us
1: mention this a few times on Dressed. <laughs> the first person to translate the brilliant illustrative possibilities of pochoir into fashion was none other than the avant-garde haute couturier and fashion pioneer, Paul Paré. So we did discuss this in our Paré episode a little bit, um, the King of Fashion episode. That He d- adopted the technique for not one, but two luxury albums of fashion entitled Les Robes de Paul Paré Rogante par Paul Aribe which was published in 1908. And then Les Choses du Paparay Vu par Georges Le Pape, which was published in 1911.
0: Yes, and we're going to talk about another episode, um, previous episode, because thanks to the Freeing the Body episode, The Birth of Modern Dress, we also know that Poiret was one of several designers of this time period who was instrumental in modernizing fashion, a la corset-free designs or corset-optional designs, and um, that were kind of based on the styles of dress worn in classical antiquity. So... Poirier, though, but for him, it wasn't enough to simply modernize fashion, you know, the way people, women were dressing. He also wanted to modernize um, fashion illustration. So he presented and advertised his fashion designs um, in, in a modern style, too. So it was really with these two albums that Poirier endeavored to breathe new life in terms of modernizing fashion illustration. And, and you know, breathe new life into this time-honored tradition of the fashion plate, which had or less been the same for centuries. Exactly. So these two
1: albums reflect this really radical new way of depicting fashion that aligned the genre for the first time, really, within the realm of fine art. So for over, as April mentioned, a hundred years, fashion illustrations had depicted the latest fashion in kind of this line for line detail. Uh, Poiré's albums captured the essence and evocative qualities of Quare's designs, or presented um, this illustration that did that. So, emboldened by bold blocks of pochoir coloring, the illustrations featured in both of these albums by Echib and Le They're really more akin to Japanese woodblock prints than any fashion plate ever seen. And Japanese woodblock prints, that should, um, were incredibly influential on not just Arib and Le but a whole bevy of artists in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, that included a lot of the Impressionist artists, such as Manet, who was a huge collector. Because for, uh, I think it was something like 300 years, Japan had essentially closed its borders to outside trade. And in the middle of the 19th century, it was reopened. And one of the things that really just flooded out of there and into Europe was these incredibly beautiful Japanese woodblock
0: prints. And mm-hmm. um, one of the other really interesting decisions that Poiré made with these two albums is that they're almost entirely devoid of text so they're they're kind of presented as artist books. Um, and 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 one of the things that he was trying to do is kind of mask this commercial impetus behind their creation, which ultimately, right, was about selling things. <laughs> it's about promoting his work. <laughs> um, but, but the way that he created these albums, um, it, it kind of blurs the line between fashion and art. And I say this again and again to my students that Poiret was really kind of one of these first fashion designers to kind of like start working in that overlapping area that that is between art and fashion that we readily take for granted today but at that time it was kind of something new absolutely yeah and 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 at the same time in in doing this kind of like elevating the fashion plate to kind of something else it simultaneously validated um, working in fashion plates um, or this type of medium for fine and classically trained artists like Le Pop, who uh, went to Col de Beaux-Arts in Paris. And the release of Poiret's albums brought international acclaim to him, and it was not long before his contemporaries adopted similar formulas for their own luxury albums of fashion. And we're going to h- hear all about that a little bit more after this brief sponsor break.
1: Welcome back. So eight months after the release of Les Shows de Paparay, couturier Jean Paquin published this oversized Pochois album illustrating her designs for furs and fans entitled La Vente et la Ferre chez Paquin. And while the album features two fashion illustrators made famous by Poirier, she hired Le Pop and Arib, Paquin can take credit for introducing the world of fashion to the talents of As I mentioned earlier, my personal favorite artist, Georges Barbier. And so the neoclassical fan design that he contributed to the album may represent his first foray into the realm of fashion, a field in which he would remain deeply immersed until his death at the pinnacle of his career in 1932.
0: Yeah, it's very sad. He died far too young, and many of the details of Barbia's private life still remain a mystery to us, but his professional career is prodigiously documented via his illustration work for books, fashion publications, and also he did quite a bit of designing for theater and film. Um, Barbier was an avid student of history. He loved going to museums, antique shops, bookstores his entire life. And thus, he kind of brought with that interest this sort of imaginative and informed perspective to his work. And this is all underscored by the fact that he had an incredibly impressive library and collected little art objects um, to which three of the walls in his private studio were dedicated.
1: Yeah. And that fourth wall in his studio, April, was lit by a skylight and it was intentionally left blank. And I just love this story. So according to Barbier's friend and author, Jean-Louis Vaudier, it was here that Barbier's creations took form. He writes, he no longer sees anything in front of him but his own dreams before catching them in a flight. For a moment, he watched them pass on the great screen of the sky among clouds and sunbeams. So References to Greek and Roman myth, classical art and architecture, 18th century interiors, fashion, of course, and the mysteries of the Orient may all collide in the span of a single Barbier plate, and they're just so incredibly rich and beautiful in their content. And for instance, in his fan design for Pacan's album, it depicts these classical nude dancers and these highly specialized musical instruments, uh, likely inspired by Etruscan tomb paintings and Tarkana.
0: And these designs that Barbier did were made all the more special by the fact that many of the actual fans produced from them survive in museum and private collections. So these were also printed in pochoir, and these fans were a really beautiful way for Pacan to advertise her couture house. So while Barbier contributed one fan design, Areeb had two, and it turns out that this album was Only one of the collaborations between Arib and Pekan that year because Arib designed approximately 50 costumes for the play Rue de la Paix, which was a comedic satire on the French couture industry. I would have, I'm kicking myself that I didn't get to see this. (laughs) But (laughs) those. But those, those costumes that he designed for stage were actually realized and made by the House of Pecan, which, which is fascinating. And a, a few more interesting facts about Arib Kass. He was so much more than a fashion illustrator. He was also a famed satirist, and that is actually kind of where he got his start in satire. Um, but he also worked as a furniture designer, a jewelry designer, and a textile designer, Little known, lesser known, in the 1930s, he designed a fine jewelry collection for his then-lover, Gabrielle Coco Chanel. Ooh, loving the
1: fashion tie-ins. There's actually a really sad story there, which is that he actually died in Chanel's presence playing tennis. So, that is sad. Following in Paquin's footsteps was the modiste Marcel Demay, whose album La Moda 1912, or The Fashion in 1912 by Marcel Demay, was released in 1912. And the album was different from its predecessors, however, in that it paired black and white photographs of um, four of Demay's more whimsical and imaginative millinery designs, one for each season. And they were modeled by this... Uh, really famous actress at the time, Berth Cerny. Um, So those photographs were paired with Pochois illustrations of the hats by Charles Martin. And this album is particularly interesting because it was printed during the height of the plume boom, the quote-unquote murderous millinery era, um, depending on the perspective that you come from. But this is also something we addressed in last season and of course, our murderous millinery episode.
0: Yeah, and while this album clearly pays tribute to the beauty of feathers in fashion, you know, a a Martin illustration of a majestic flying bird graces its cover. A few of his other illustrations kind of give this hint to the relationship um, between fashion and feathers that it was fraught with contention and controversy. And each photograph of Cerny, Bert Cerny, is accompanied by a Martin illustration at the bottom of the page. And one in particular, um, which is a woman dressed from Greek antiquity, she's contemplating a bird in her hand, kind of seemingly asking, friend or fashion accessory? <laughs> and and the answer kind of um, seems to be found above, quite literally, in, in the form of her feathered hat, right? But another Martin illustration from this publication depicts an open-mouthed snake chasing after two birds. And, and both of these illustrations really reflect these sort of relevant allegories in the face of growing tension between wildlife activists and the feather trade. And
1: 1912 actually was a huge year for pochoir and fashion. Um, so we had the DeMay album, we have Paccan's album, and then we have these three incredibly important, breathtakingly beautiful periodicals. Gazette de Bon Ton, Mode Manier d'Aujourd'hui, and the reincarnation of the late 18th century Journal de Damage des Mode. Uh, we did discuss the origins of Journal, um, the fashion magazine, last week in our Greta Wegner episode, but I thought we could take this time, April, to talk about another one of our favorite women contributors to the publication, MFN.
0: Yes. And this was a incredibly frustrating mystery to Cassidy and I for wow I don't know at least like 8 months <laughs> <laughs> because we had we, we found all these plates that were signed MFN and and her style was recognizable instantly recognizable and it took us a little while, bit to figure out who this person was and it turns out they are by Marie Madeleine franck Nohain, and this very distinctive illustrative style that she has is notable for the fact that many of them depict these very tender moments between a mother and a child and the inclusion of children in her works um, it, we, we realized after the fact is probably second nature given the fact that she is best known as an author and illustrator of children's books. This was a mind-boggling mystery as to who this person was for us for months and months and months.
1: But so fun to finally discover the answer to that fashion history mystery. And I, as April said, her fashion plates for Journal are some of, of our absolute favorites, as are many of the plates that appeared in that publication over its two year run. Um, but I really have to say that publisher Lucien Vogel's Gazette de Bon Ton was by far the most influential of these luxury limited edition publications that came into being at this time. So his magazine was launched in November of 1912, and that was just a mere five months after Journal de des Mode. But it would outlive its rival publication by 13 years. The magazine ran until 1925.
0: And the magazine represented the height of sophistication in the pochoir technique, not only the pochoir technique, but also fashion, I should really say. And it was printed in limited edition runs with a very high subscription cost. And we are talking an annual subscription cast that equates to roughly the price of a used car at the time, which is oh my amazing. Um, <gasps> and Gazette was intended for a really elite readership that was preoccupied with the art of high living and the cultivation of good taste, which is more or less the translation of Le Bon Ton. And its subtitle, Art, Fashion, and Frivolities, also conveyed the sort of lighthearted tone that runs throughout the magazine. It had a really fun sense of humor, and, and I think, to me, that's one of its most endearing qualities. But to add to its cachet, the magazine was originally sponsored by seven of the leading couture houses of the day, which include Poiret, Paquin, Doucet, Deuille, Charis, Redfern, and the House of Worth. And it was these houses' designs that were depicted exclusively by a rotating cast of the best and brightest artists and illustrators of the era.
1: Right. So then more than 80 illustrators contributed to Gazette over the course of its publication. And it this really sought to infuse the magazine with this broad variety of styles that ranged from, you know, stylized realism to the pure fantastical. And it's so wonderful to um, to look at these fashion plates. And the magazine really just was instrumental in propelling this discourse between art and fashion forward and further validating the fact that fashion and fashion illustration was a viable outlet of modern artistic practice. Art was the centerpiece of the publication, this visually arresting, pervasive element that entices the reader with the turn of every page.
0: And the scenarios depicted on each fashion plate, as well as its witty and often humorous text, was the creation of the illustrators. And the captions, which are hilarious in certain cases, like one is called Horrible Wind, another one is Be Discreet, another one, The Death of Love. These titles kind of complemented the unique vision of each artist. And therefore, the garments that were portrayed were treated as if they were the subjects in a painting— the fashion place masked as a storytelling picture. And, and in this way, Gazette mitigated the inherent consumerism of the fashion magazine and managed to present the garments as true works of art. And at the heart of
1: Gazette de Ton's roster of illustrators, which is something April and I were really, it was really interesting to discover this and really fun, was this core group of men who uncoincidentally also happened to be Vogel, the publisher's friend. So we have Bernard Boutet de Von Vell, his cousin Pierre Brousseau, Georges Le Pape, Georges Barbier, Andre Edouard Marty, or A.E. Marty, and Charles Martin. And all of these young men had received their fine arts training at the Ecole de Beaux Arts in Paris. And Vogue editor in chief, Edna Woolman Chase, actually dubbed the group of well dressed friends the quote unquote Beau Brummels of the Brush. And she really positioned Vogel as their enterprising impresario who had conceived of Gazette. Um, well, as a employment for his friends, but also as a forum for their artistic talents, which were eagerly sought after by other luxury fashion publications as well.
0: And a 1914 Vogue article about this stylish gents reads, quote... It is rather, in fact, the certain dandyism of dress and manner, which is a consistent characteristic of the group that makes them a quote-unquote school. Their hat brims are a wee bit broader than the modish ones of the day. Their coats are pinched in a little. A bracelet slipping down over a wrist at an unexpected moment betrays a love of luxury, end quote. And this article is accompanied by paintings and photographs of these dapper gents, the illustrators, the self-proclaimed quote-unquote knights of the bracelet.
1: Do you think, I have to wonder, do you think they all had the same bracelet? I don't know. Do you think they had friendship bracelets? <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. I'm just saying. <laughs> so not mentioned in Chase's assessment of the Gazette artist, however, is a man who was arguably the most famous of them all, and that is Etienne Driant. And he was an internationally renowned illustrator who went professionally solely by his last name and was as well known for his signature depiction of fashionable women as he was for his friendships and collaborations with celebrities of the day, that included such famous actresses as Gabby DeLee and Cecile Sorrell.
0: Another important contributing artist to Gazette was Ernesto Michelez, who is also known as Teat. And he was an accomplished painter, sculptor, engraver, goldsmith. He kind of did it all. And he was also a fashion illustrator and designer thanks to his collaboration with Madeleine Vionnet, who became one of Gazette's sponsors in the 1920s. And Teot, which is actually a palindrome, so it is spelled the same forwards as it is backwards, um, just a little fun fact there. Um, he illustrated Vionnet's plates that appeared in Gazette du Bonton, and he also contributed original designs to her fashion house. And in Italy, he worked on a wide variety of projects with the ultimate goal of Inventing a New National Style, he wrote a manifesto on the subject of fashion, and he was also a supporter of the Made in Italy fashion design movement. And perhaps the thing that Teat is most famous for is his uh, unisex jumpsuit, which he called the tuta. Um, and this is really kind of representative of the types of experimental clothing that was being advocated for by the futurists and constructivist artists immediately following World War I. Yes, I mean, something that was particularly cool about writing the book, in addition,
1: of course, to learning about all of these incredible artists, was discovering just how many garments illustrated in the pages of Gazette de Ton survive to this day. And that includes a dress um, illustrated by Tayot of a VNA dress in Gazette in 1923, and it's this beautiful dress of gradating blocks called Le Hage or The Storm, and I think that that survives in the Museum of Decorative Arts in Paris.
0: We also have really beautiful examples of Paccan garments that are illustrated in the pages of Gazette that exist in museum collections. There's a really beautiful black and pink evening coat um, that was illustrated by the Spanish artist and illustrator Francisco Javier Gosey And an example of this actually is at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And I particularly love this Gozet illustration because he really, in the illustration, brings the coat alive for us. It's beautifully illuminated in pochoir. And he presents us with this striking glamazon type figure. And she's kind of looking at you slyly over backwards over her shoulder. And and he, in this illustration, is giving this air of mystery and intrigue to the coat itself that, that if you just see a photo of it, Um, it's missing that kind of like glamour and mystery. Like he's telling a story that the coat itself doesn't tell. Does that make sense, Cass?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also really interesting to stress just how cool it is that All of these different artists have these really, really distinctive styles that really separate them from each other, and they're all working within this medium of fashion illustration, and it's just really wonderful. And has is one of those that just has this incredibly instantly recognizable style once you're familiar with his work. Another garment from Gazette that survives is Paré's Sorbet gown um, from 1913. And it's not one version that survives, but three. The Fashion Institute of Technology has one, the Sh- Chicago Historical Museum, and also the v in London. And um, they have different versions and different colors, which is really lovely. But the dress is topped with this gorgeous kimono-style wrapped tunic, and then it fans out in Poirier's signature lampshade silhouette. And that dress was so beautifully illustrated by Georges Lepap, who was one of the greatest fashion illustrators of the 20th century. He has this incredible career that spans five decades. And um, it's really interesting because he illustrated more than 100 covers for American, French, and British editions of Vogue alone. So quite the prolific fashion illustrator.
0: Yeah, and he was also the first contributor to our next favorite pochoir fashion publication, which is the almanac, More Manier d'aujourd'hui. So uh, the poet and publisher was Pierre and and he was inspired to create this album after observing three very fashionable women skipping some stones on the beach. And he writes, quote, their bodies were liberated from restraints and their dresses flourished. Each of their attitudes was worth immortalizing. So Carrard was a self-proclaimed, quote unquote, passionate admirer of women. And he envisioned his publication, More Manier de Aujourd'hui, or the fashions and manners of today, as an annual testament to fashion, and the manners of the idealized woman, you know, basically interpreted through pairing, the pairing of someone who created the prose, and then the illustrators um, who created the images. And each, each publication was, the visuals were the work of one single artist.
1: So for the album's inaugural issue, Courard enlisted the talents of La Pop, whose 12 illustrations are each accompanied by Courard's witty narrative. And he says, the painter celebrates the form and color, the man of the verb expresses the idea. And as April mentioned, this relationship would be maintained in all future incarnations of the publication, which would similarly pair fashion illustration, and literature's greatest luminaries. The other artists that contributed to the series include Charles Martin, Georges Barbier, but also Robert Bonfi, Fernand Simeon, and A.E. Marty. And in total, there are seven albums of Modé Manier d'aujourd'hui um, that were produced from 1912 to 1922. And again, just so incredibly beautiful.
0: Yeah, and I mean, painfully rare. <laughs> um, we have all of them at FIT and Special Collections, but up until recently, we were one of two public institutions worldwide to have all of them. Um, and it just happens to be, if you had listened to a mini so that we did a while back, you guys might remember that I was in Australia at the National Gallery of Victoria. And right before I got there, they also acquired their own complete set. So now there are only three public institutions worldwide that have all of these. So that's what we're talking about in terms of rarity. Um, And perhaps one of the uh, most intriguing facts about many of the artists that we have covered here today, chatted about, goes far beyond their ability to render the designs of the top couture houses, you know, as these really beautiful, compelling works of art. But sometimes these artist illustrators themselves were creating the very fashions that they depicted on the page. They, they weren't taken from real life. They were imagining them. So the fashions featured in Mode Manier, for instance, were entirely of the artist's fancy. Um, you know, they were, of course, inspired by contemporary trends, but Gazette du Banton, um, you know, offered its readers a combination of both illustrations of garments by leading couturiers and also um, the artist illustrator's original designs. So so different publications had a different take on on the fashions themselves that they were depicting. And these sartorial
1: suggestions by these artists did not escape the notice of the great fashion designers of the day or Vogue editor Edna Woolman Chase, who wrote of the Gazette de Bon Ton artist specifically. It was hoped that the haute couture would copy them more than once, though couture did and Georges lapop actually argued that fashion illustrators had a profound influence on contemporary styles saying he may through his interpretation impose fashion making it understood and appreciated by the medium of his art and personality or by creating and inventing he can force fashion to follow in the furrow plowed by his own imagination
0: I mean, it's a pretty convincing argument, Cass, right? Especially oh, really. I absolutely <laughs> agree. <laughs> especially when you realize that many of these artists' illustrators like Barbier, like Charles Martin and Um, AEMRT, who is one of our favorites, Um, they parlayed their high-profile success as fashion illustrators into these incredible multifaceted careers. I mean, some of them worked um, in advertising, doing illustrations that appeared in magazines and newspapers. They also worked as book illustrators. They they were working as costume designers for theater and film. And, And really what this kind of ended up meaning is that their influence spread well beyond the insular nature of fashion and ultimately served to define this visual aesthetic of the art deco era. And, and it's really interesting to note that how much of this quote-unquote art deco style really did develop prior to World War One, before the 20s. It was already out there in the teens.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to learn about that and to see how these styles were developing in the pre-World War I era at the the hands of this incredibly talented artist. And there's a few instances um, specifically where garments conceived by these artists were in fact realized. So Leon Basque is perhaps most famous as the set and costume designer for the groundbreaking Russian dance company, the Ballet Ruse. Uh, but in 1913, he actually turned his hand and eye towards women's fashion, and he partnered with Jean Pacan for the execution of his designs. So he illustrated his Philomene dress for Gazette de Monton in April of 1913. And then a few months later, it was photographed for Vogue magazine being worn by Miss Gabby Delee. And uh, I'm not going to lie, his designs are definitely out there. And even Vogue acknowledged their jamais vu or never seen qualities. And again, <laughs> promised to post a pic.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a little, I mean, I'm all for avant-garde, right? We, I think we all know that. But there's something strange about his designs cast, right? These particular ones. It's something about the proportions. Like he was messing with the proportions in these designs. Yeah. And that's what feels off about them somehow. Gabby's wearing a bib.
1: Yeah. looks like she's wearing a bib and apron too. And that might have to do with, you know, obviously the black and white photography gets rid of some of those, flattens some of those nuances. Um, but it's 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 interesting to be able to compare the real garment with his um, interpretation of the
0: illustration. The illustration is just so much more exciting. Yeah, and, and we'll definitely do a little like side-by-side comparison on Instagram for you guys. But um, really the, this legion of illustrators, um, they ended up becoming really instrumental in capturing and in some instance creating the sort of radical transformations in fashion that occurred between the years of 1908 and 1925. And these revolutionary changes that were happening during the 19-teens, they were often overshadowed by the kind of the glamour associated with the periods that came immediately before and after the so-called Edwardian and Art Deco eras. But the teens were arguably the most significant of these three, however, because it's exactly in this period that we witnessed the birth of modern dress, which we have covered extensively on our podcast. <laughs> we're not going to beat a dead horse.
1: Uh, and these experiments in fashion were not without their critics, I should say. And we'll hear a little bit more about that afterward from our sponsors. Welcome back. So the satirist Enrico Sacchetti released his album, Robe Femme, in 1914. The Title sounds lovely, doesn't it? So it was printed in pochoir and a limited edition run. Sacchetti's work was not your typical fashion satire, which often included bits of coarse or witty text that further elucidated the humorous nature of the specific scene that was depicted. So Sacchetti kind of got rid of these uh, traditional textual elements and instead chose to follow more surprisingly in the footsteps of Les Robes de Palparais and his positioning of the portfolio really as an artist publication. And so in this way, I mean, Sacchetti's kind of elevating satire to... I don't know, April, this kind of classy realm.
0: Yeah, which I guess traditionally satire is kind of thought as like like being base or basic. But yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think we can all appreciate satire, especially if it's really well done. And and I think that we can also appreciate the way that Saketti did this because his brand of humor here in this album is really, really, really subtle. And the women that he... Is depicting are kind of literally consumed by their fashionable garments, and he's made this decision to render them unrecognizable. Um, we don't see their faces, their faces are hidden or their backs are turned. Their individuality has basically been sacrificed to this altar of fashion. And <laughs> it's true, like they're just like kind of like thematically selecting styles for novelty rather than suitability. And I guess it's that that you know, we have to wonder: like, is he pointing the accusatory finger at the fashion designers and the milliners for their outlandish designs? Or or is it this penchant for excess that lies with the client who really hasn't shown any restraint, right, in her enthusiasm for luxury? And it's like that age-old maxim, really, of, like, uh, fashion versus style, right? Because fashion is always about novelty, not necessarily what suits you as a person. right. Yeah. and
1: then the so the fashion victim of course who falls falls victim to their love of fashion love of novelty for fashion. So mm-hmm. I mean and fashion is so luxurious during this period and incredibly decadent but it's also just so experimental. Um I mean the pre-world one era is my favorite period in fashion history for this very reason. I mean Gazette Journal, Manier, they're all documenting these wonderful experiments with really taking the fashionable silhouette to these extremes. So you have these hobble skirts, you have lampshade tunics, and designers are producing these experiments in silhouette and these bold fabric and color combinations in a way that we just have really not seen in fashion history up to this point. Um, you have a lot of uh, influence of the ballet russe, um, all these different um, kind of um, inspirations coming in uh, that really reflect the era zeitgeist, which is this decadent, I mean, really hedonistic period of luxury and indulgent. And and then it all just comes to an abrupt halt.
0: Yep. Like screeching halt. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think uh, Lucille the fashion designer Couturier Lucille or Lady Duff Gordon kind of said it best she said quote all through that last brilliant pre-war summer Paris amused herself spent recklessly gave wonderful fetes, danced laughed and made love as though she had not a care in the world and nobody saw the war clouds gathering until they burst with a shattering suddenness In one week Paris was a changed city World War One broke out in July of 1914 and with that I mean, Cass, the world was forever changed in that instant.
1: Yeah, it really was. And April and I go into a lot more detail about fashion and the fashion industry during this period um, in our book, if you want to check it out, because it's really um, an incredibly fascinating period, um, but also just so devastating. Um, I think a 1920 survey on the cost of the war calculated that something like, Almost 13 million soldiers had lost their lives. I mean, this is just a devastating number that was presumed to be equaled by civilian deaths. It was a horrific period. And there was, it was obviously no place for lavish fashions or decadent consumption, public consumption of any kind. So that, of course, includes luxury fashion magazines, so... Gazette de Bon Ton and Journal de Dame and Mode immediately suspended publication. Um, And of course, many of the men that were running these publications, many of the fashion designers, like um, you had Lucien Vogel, Paul Paré, A.E. Marty. these men were joining the millions of men across France who were subject to compulsory military service. So they were going to war.
0: Yeah, and one of Cass and I's favorite fashion history images is um, this image, and maybe we'll post it in conjunction with this. It's not pochoir, but we do have a photo of Paul Paré in his military uniform. And he's being very sassy smoking a cigarette. He's being very sassy. <laughs> We, we, tr- we tried to make a T-shirt out of it for our tea Public store, but, but uh, because it's such a rare archival image, we couldn't get a high enough res image of it. Anyway, I was sad when it didn't work out. But back to our topic today. In 1915, uh, Gazette Bonton did release a special edition of the magazine in collaboration with the American publishing mogul and Vogue founder, Condé Nast. And this was subtitled, the 1915 mode, as shown by Paris. And this edition commemorated the exhibition of Parisian fashions at the Panama Pacific International Exhibition, which was held in San Francisco. So many of the Haute Coutureas were at war, and France was potentially threatened with invasion at every turn. And it was not known if the French fashion industries would survive. So this issue was kind of meant to be this tribute to France's indomitable spirit in the face of the current war and the challenges that they were facing. And and also it was a message to the American market for French fashions. You know, it was this declaration of the country's continued dominance in matters of fashion and taste. Um, and, and it was it was something that France kind of felt necessary um, in the face of the fact that that American fashion um, at this point was like steadily, slowly, kind of gaining momentum.
1: Yeah, they were making a bid. Yeah, <laughs> to design, they were taking that opportunity to start designing. So, and, and I think it's important um,
0: to I think it's important to point out that it didn't really take hold and take effect till the Second World War, not the First World War. But this kind of right. sentiment was like bubbling there for decades.
1: Yeah. Um, But any of those initial threats to the fashion industry really proved unfounded. And um, operations, although they were limited, they did continue. Uh, And with it, um, fashion continued, and fashion continued to change during World War I. Um, You have skirts widening and shortening. And really, especially for the hundreds of thousands of working women in France during the war, comfort and utility in dress were really important and this was exemplified by the couture industry alone. Women were already uh, a substantial part of France's workforce, but the war really necessitated the influx of hundreds of thousands of more women to fill jobs that had once exclusively been held by men. So you have women driving ambulances and cabs for the first time, they're tram workers, they're mail carriers and metro workers. And the image of the fashionable net, um was uh, soon rivaled by the trousered munitionette an image that was fraught with controversy about women's new roles, which operated outside of society's strict gender code. So munitionette workers were women that were making munitions.
0: Yeah. And pants, they're kind of like the Rosie. The, our ver, their
1: version of Rosie the Riveters, absolutely. Yeah. And we will post a picture of the trouser munitionette who appeared on um, one of the covers of Lay Mode magazine um, in 1918, I believe. So mm-hmm. it's
0: really cool to see. Yeah, and and the other phrase that has said the munitionette, they were basically like uh, the fashion workers. So they were like. The the ultra fashionable fashion workers that were kind of like the hands of the couture industry, uh, versus these women who were working like actually making weapons. So they're kind of like polar opposite slip sides of the coin. One would think. And did Mininet didn't it get its name because of they they
1: would come out on mass midday
0: mm-hmm, and eat their
1: lunch in the Place Vendôme? Yeah. Oh, oh, so
0: cute. <laughs> Armistice was declared on November eleventh, nineteen eighteen. After four years of struggles, Paris slowly began to pick up the pieces, but people's lives are really irreversibly altered, and and, and so also was women's fashion. You know, the harsh realities of four years of war left very little room for the women's elaborate toilets and customs of the pre-war era, and this trend for short bobbed hair was perhaps the most exemplary marker of the kind of changed attitudes towards dress that happened immediately after the war but also clothing um, began to hang away from the body and it was increasingly promoting an ease of movement and comfort above everything else.
1: And by early 1919, Paris's nightlife was again in full force, this time with a renewed vigor and spirit. Um, Women really shed their wartime inhibitions. They danced to the sounds of jazz music, which was new to Europe at the time and ushered in the grand 1920s. And it is really within this atmosphere of post-war revelry, a time of prosperity and almost this frenzied pursuit to kind of move forward and consume um, that the Pochois technique was revived.
0: And as a largely sedentary process, um, meaning that you could do it while stationary, stenciling and pochoir turned out to be a viable profession for men who returned from the war with injuries that precluded them from certain types of employment. And Cass, I think this is one of our favorite things that we discovered when when uh, we were researching the book that in 1918 on the Rue Friant, there was a printing studio that opened a space specifically to train and employ disabled World War I veterans in the art of pochoir, which is amazing. Yeah, that was really
1: cool um, when you figured that out. And Gazette de Bonton, of course, returned, but this time a controlling interest had been purchased by Condé Nast, um, founder of American Vogue, during the war to help it survive, Ah uh, Momenier d'aujourdhui also came back. Um And something that was really interesting is that Andre Edouard Marty, who um while recovering from his wounds that he'd received during the war, he filled his time sketching in the hospital ward. And, in his edition for uh, mode Manier d'aujourd'hui, he really pays respect to the end of the war um, in the fifth edition, um, and it's with this opening image, and it's called The Demobilization, and depicts a father returning home to his family. Um, the father reclines in a chair, he's still wearing his uniform, and his children really come to present him with items from a civilian wardrobe, so a suit, hat, and cane, and what seems to be something like a scarf or a necktie.
0: Yeah, and um, this is one of Cass and I's favorite plates, I think, and um, I would just like to mention, Cass, I noted when I was looking at it again the other day preparing for this episode that the three children depicted in the plate, there's one boy, one girl, and a smaller child who may be a boy or a girl, they're all wearing Mary Janes. And we actually just did a fashion history mystery mm. about the origin of the Mary Janes and how <laughs> that they were a unisex style for many, many, many decades, if not maybe a century. Um, and I just thought it was really funny to come and see that actually playing out in the plate that we're going to talk about today. So there's that.
1: That's wonderful. And we're posting that image, too. So yeah.
0: I'm really excited for this week's Instagram. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, another periodical that we do talk about in the book is a fashion and lifestyle periodical that emerges new at this time. And it's called Le Gout du Jour, or Taste of the Day. Um, it was, of course, published in Pochoir. And, and also there's another album called La Dernière Lettre Présent by Furrier Max, which is a, a furrier, a f- creator of furs at the time. And the Furrier Max album is breathtakingly gorgeous. It has gold leaf and pochoir mixed together and was illustrated by Eduardo Garcia Benito and professionally known simply as Benito, he was a young Spaniard that arrived in Paris just before the outbreak of the war in 1912. Um, he came to study at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. And immediately upon his arrival, Benito had really good luck in Paris. He just fell into the circle of avant-garde Spanish artists who happened to be working in France, which, of course, included Pablo Picasso and Juan Gris. And so it's not terribly long after completing his studies that Benito began to gain professional recognition as a painter, working in the Cubist and Fauvist manners. And Benito credits his patron, Paul Paré with his entry into high fashion. So uh, Poirier was... Kind of infamous for this, right, Cass? I mean, you 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 are you are the poire expert <laughs> here. He's just
1: an incredibly important artist. Yeah, he was a really important, not only fashion designer, but also patron of artists. He had an incredible collection. Yeah, himself. and he's
0: he supported his his fellow creatives to a degree that's kind of like almost unheard of. Even Elsa Scaparelli credits. Pare with being the one to tell her, no, you need to be a fashion designer. And that was like decades later. So anyway, Benito credits um, his entry into the realm of fashion illustration to Pare, and his works do appear in Gazette du Banton and also on the covers of Vogue and Vanity Fair all throughout the 1920s and the 1930s.
1: And it is with his illustrations for Dernier Lettre that we ended our book, April. Um, although women's fashions continue to progress, towards modernity in the 1920s. Well, the use of the pushwa technique actually declined, as did luxury fashion publications, which really became increasingly obsolete in the 1920s. Um, as the work of these Poshua fashion illustrators became a more and more recognizable part of the public consciousness, April and I talked about how um, prolific these illustrators were in other mediums. So this once novel modern effects that were being employed in these fashion illustrations really became commonplace, It's also during this period that fashion illustration was being challenged and gradually being replaced by the growing field of fashion photography. We also did an episode on fashion photography. Lots of overlaps today. Uh, Fashion photography had begun to develop as a modern artistic medium in its own right in the 1920s. And it's really interesting to discover how it borrowed many of its visual cues from the realm of these fashion illustrators.
0: Yeah, and another factor in the decline... um of this popularity of the pushbar technique had to do with quality. So there were these three pushbar magazines that began in the 1920s. We have Très Prisienne, Les Edits Nouvelles de la Mode, and Art Goutte Bouté*, which all kind of attest to this decline. You know, the place in these publications have lost this sort of romantic, artistic appeal. And they've kind of regressed to these standardized representations of fashion and fashion plates that we w- that we saw in the past in the 19th century. The, the actual execution of the pochoir technique is meh, so-so, right? It's no Sade. <laughs> yes. It's no Jean <laughs> No. Um, but, but basically, after complaints about the extremely high subscription costs, Gazette du Bonton eventually slowly began to replace their pochoir plates with color lithography beginning in nineteen twenty-two. And and Cass, I have to say, I think we both are on the same page with this, that that once they started incorporating color lithography, the entire allure and charm of the publication kind of gave way. And this undoubtedly resulted in its demise. It was just like, why? Yeah, and the magazine
1: sadly folded in 1925 and with it ended this incredible period when art and fashion merged to the most beautiful effects, in my opinion, in the history of fashion. Thankfully, for over 100 years later, these pochois works have maintained their extraordinary beauty and appeal due in large part to these amazing resilience of the pochois technique. If you look at these plates, they appear to have lost none of their original luster, the paints gleaming on the page as if it was freshly painted today, and private collectors and museums the world over treasure these remarkable and now increasingly rare publications as works of arts. And you can too, which is exciting because Pochois Fashion Plates can actually be purchased on Etsy and eBay. Our friends Antoine and Nicola, who have been guests on the show last season, well, they have an incredible, superb
0: collection for sale as well on their website, dictots.com. That's D-I-K-T-A-T-S.com. And also, if you're a giant nerd like we are, just go on their website and look around and you'll be on there like, for half of the afternoon for the whole day (laughs) and and maybe
1: more days to come.
0: (laughs) So that does it today for us dress listeners. May you consider living your life as colorfully as a pochoir fashion plate next time you get dressed. Remember to tune
1: in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions from you, our listeners. We'd
0: love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct messages on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images to accompany each week's episode. Dress underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore.
1: For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com and do not forget about our merch store at teepublic.com forward slash dress. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dress. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every
0: week. Catch you soon. Bye. Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.